to Jeremiah chapter 34. While Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms and peoples in the empire he ruled were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding towns, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Go to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, This is what the Lord says. I am about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will burn it down. You will not escape from his grasp but will surely be captured and handed over to him. You will see the king of Babylon with your own eyes, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Yet hear the promise of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord says concerning you. You will not die by the sword, you will die peacefully. As people made a funeral fire in honor of your fathers, the former kings who preceded you, so they will make a fire in your honor and lament, Alas, O Master! I myself make this promise, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet told all this to Zedekiah king of Judah in Jerusalem, while the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem, and the other cities of Judah that were still holding out, Lachish and Azekah. These were the only fortified cities left in Judah. The word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So all the officials and people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free, but afterward they changed their minds and took back the slaves that they had freed and enslaved them again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. After he has served you six years, you must let him go free. Your fathers, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. Recently you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen. So I now proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord, freedom to fall by the sword, plague, and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf, 
I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. I will hand Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials over to their enemies who seek their lives, to the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. I am going to give the order, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city. They will fight against it, take it, and burn it down, and I will lay waste the towns of Judah so no one can live there. Tonight we look at Abraham, the covenant of promise. Now there's an old friend behind me. The blackboard is to a teacher what a canvas is to an artist. It's something you just can't wait to get your hands on. And the first thing you want to do is, is fill it all up. Of course, I know there's something called negative space in, in artistry. And maybe that's not the same thing with a blackboard because this won't be artistry. But this is what I've got to do. Now you recognize that as lazy V theology. And this is the idea of the beginning of God's working with man as it is moving toward the consummation of things in history. And what you have in, in this history is a series of covenants that God makes with his people. We begin with Adam. And we called Adam the covenant of commencement. Because that is when God commenced. He began everything. It was as though God were planting a seed. And you know in a seed all that potential of what is to come in the future is inherent. So in the first words that God spoke to Adam was the seed of the whole of history that was to follow. When he said the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent while the seed of the serpent shall crush the heel of the woman. There was an anticipation there of all the struggle between good and evil defined as being on God's side or against God's side that has developed in the history of the world. Then God established a covenant with Noah. And this covenant is called the covenant of preservation because in this covenant God committed himself to preserve the earth. It was as though he were laying a foundation for the whole of the history of the world that was to follow. When God committed himself to say, so long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and winter and summer and, summer and winter and cold and heat and day and night will not cease, he was committing himself to maintain the earth even though the wickedness of, of man was very great in the earth. Then we come to Adam, or Abraham. And Abraham is the covenant of promise. For here God says, I promise. He makes a commitment to man and says, I will redeem you. I will restore you to paradise. And he vows, he takes an oath of self-malediction at that point. Then we go to Moses, the covenant of law in which God manifests his righteousness. 
that it is not just that a man is to be justified, but that he is to live a righteous life before God. And in all the tabernacle and in all the history of Israel's experience in the wilderness, God was anticipating the day in which the Christ would come. We come to David, the covenant of the kingdom. And here God manifests the fact that he's not just interested in a church, he's not just interested in the assembly of God's people for worship, but he's interested in a kingdom, that the whole of the world is to be brought into submission to Jesus Christ, that not one inch of the world that God has made should be out of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have anticipated the new heavens and the new earth. And finally we have the new covenant. The new covenant, which is the covenant of Christ. The covenant of consummation. In which every one of these old covenants finally reels, finds its realization and its consummation. Each one of the covenants is fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the new covenant. Now you can see in these covenants at the heart of everything is the Abrahamic covenant. It is, as it were, the hinge pin, the center of all of God's covenantal dealings with man. One of the most amazing things to realize is that you could have been that Abraham. It was just an ordinary person like you or I, and God chose that person and, as it were, made him the center of the history of the world, the center of his dealings with his people. And as a matter of fact, if you think of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ as a tree and yourself as a branch that is brought into that tree, it's as though you were a little Abraham. And all of those promises and all of that covenant all those commitments that God made with Abraham, also he makes with you. So that's so much of the overall structure of Scripture. And tonight we're going to look in particular at Abraham, the covenant of promise, to see how that particular covenant and the commitments that God made with Abraham, as a matter of fact, provide the structure of the whole of history from the beginning unto the consummation in Jesus Christ. Now, that's something an artist can't do very well, but a teacher can enjoy that kind of pleasure. Now, we look at Abraham. The covenant of promise. Abraham, the covenant of promise. And we begin in this covenant at about 2000 B.C., that was the date, approximately, of Abraham. We begin at approximately 2000 B.C., and that is the time of Abraham. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, if you'll turn to that chapter, you can remember something of the emphasis that was brought out last week. In Genesis chapter 15. Here you see that the covenant that God made with Abraham was a covenant of reassurance, a covenant of assurance. In verse 
8 of Genesis chapter 15, Abram says, Oh Lord, how can I know? How can I be sure that what you're promising me is true? How can I know that you're going to redeem me completely and totally in body and spirit? How can I know that you're going to fulfill all the promises that you have given to me? How can I know, especially when I'm living without any apparent fulfillment of any of the promises? I pray over and over again that you will give me that seed, even the first seed that you promised, and yet I am childless. I pray over and over that you will give me that land, that you will restore me to paradise, and yet I'm getting older and older, and I don't even possess one square inch of territory. And rather than being a blessing to the nations, I seem to be a curse everywhere I go. How can I know that you are going to fulfill these promises to me? And God responds by cutting the covenant with Abraham. God responds by binding himself to Abraham in the covenant-making ceremony. Now also, in this covenant with Abraham, in Genesis 15, you can see it's in a context of promise. Look at verse 13. Know, says the Lord, that your seed will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards you will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your seed will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Four hundred years, you're going to be in great trial and tribulation. The Egyptians are going to torment you. They're going to require of you unreasonable production. They're going to make you make brick without straw and still meet your, sta- your same quota. And you're going to drive home at 7 o'clock in the evening and you're going to say, how in the world can I keep this pace up any longer with the taskmasters with whom I have to work today? You as Christians are going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. That is a part of the prophecy of the covenant. But that prophecy also is that the wicked ultimately shall be judged. In the end, I will bring a judgment on that nation, and by that judgment I will deliver you from all your oppressions. And even in your trials, even in your tribulations, you're going to be blessed. As we saw last week at the end of Abraham's life, the scripture says God had blessed Abraham in everything. Isn't that wonderful? God will bless you in everything, even in your losses as well as in your gains. God will be blessing you. And you just have to look at the blessings. You have to look at the crocuses that are coming out right through the midst of the snow and know that God is blessing you. You have to see the rainbow even amidst the bloated clouds because God is there. And God will sanctify you, even your deepest distresses. And all of this is for the sake of the wicked. The wickedness of the Amorites is not yet full. God is being long-suffering to the wicked, not desirous that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so you and I as Christians are called upon to live a godly life in the midst of a a crooked and perverse generation to bear a a witness and testimony that a few more, maybe even many more, 
may come to the eternal blessings in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that was the original context of the covenant with Abraham founded in Genesis chapter 15. Notice also in the end that it was a a covenant of self-malediction. In verse 17 of Genesis 15, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Abraham had taken animals. And that had been a lot of work. If you've ever done any butchering at all, you know that's hard work to move that massive animal around and cut it into pieces. Abraham had divided the animals. He had put the pieces facing one another. And then he saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces. What is the meaning? What is going on here? Well, it's an oath of self-malediction. That is, the one who is entering into the covenant is calling down curses upon himself. He's saying, may God, as it were, tear my body apart, just as these animals have been torn apart if I violate the commitments that I make in this covenant. And who was it that passed between the pieces? Not Abraham, but God in symbolic form. In symbolic form, God said to Abraham, if necessary, may my body be torn apart so that you may benefit from all the blessings of the covenant. And he was saying, by God alone passing through, and as for you, Abraham, even if you should violate the covenant, I will assume to myself the curses of the covenant that you may receive the blessings of the covenant. So you may know for certain, you may be assured because of God's covenant with Abraham. Now we want to move our timeline down a little bit further from 2000 B.C. to 600 B.C. Now, if you subtract 2000 from 600, you get 1,400 years. 1,400 years. Now, this country is a whopping 200 years old. We really think we're ancient. We've been around for 200 years. Well, now, here was a people that had been in one area for 1,400 years. And that's where Jeremiah chapter 34 comes in. Look at Jeremiah chapter 34. We know exactly the date of this prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 34 because of the first verse where it says, While Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms and peoples in the in the empire he ruled, were fighting against Jerusalem. The word of the Lord came, from, came to Jeremiah. What's happening? Hear that? Somebody's knocking at the door. But he's not knocking with his knuckles. He's knocking with battering rams. And that's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's come all the way from Babylon. And now in 587 B.C., he's knocking on the gates of Jerusalem with his battering rams. Now, previous to this point, the people of God had said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is this. Why, it's impossible. Of course, Samaria could fall in the northern kingdom as it did in 722 B.C. 
But there's no way that Jerusalem would fall because Jerusalem is the very place where God lives. There's no way that God would bring judgment on those who profess his own name. And yet here is Nebuchadnezzar pounding against the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. Well, you know what King Zedekiah did? Well, he said, well, folks, it's time for a little old-time religion. Let's go back to the old-timey ways. We better do something, and we better do it in a hurry. So what did he do? King Zedekiah said, let's have a little covenant renewal. Let's renew that old covenant bond that we had with God. And so they entered into a covenant with God, as it is described. And Jeremiah the prophet talks about that covenant. But then what happened? They turned back from that covenant renewal. Look at Jeremiah 34, verse 8. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had cut a covenant, that's the literal translation, with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to flee his, free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So all the officials and people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free. Now all they were doing was keeping the law that God had required. God had said that a Hebrew could be enslaved only for seven years. But in the seventh year, he was to be freed. So you can imagine the housewives of Jerusalem, after dusting the corners way up under the tables a couple of days, and after going out and building a fire in that hot summer in the kitchen and sweat pouring down their faces, and after they had to wash all their dirty dishes and beat all their clothes and iron them and so forth, then they came back to their husbands and said, John, I want my slave back. You go back and bring my slave and let that slave do my work again. And so they went back and they brought their slaves back. Those Jews who had enslaved their own Jewish brothers brought them back contrary to the law of Moses and enslaved them again, contrary to the covenant that they had established with God. Now, you know, it's a very dangerous thing to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and then turn back. It is a very serious thing to say, I want Jesus Christ to free me from the bondage of my sin and then go back as the sow wallowing again in the mire. God will bring great judgment in those contexts. And look at what Jeremiah says in verse 17. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen. So now I proclaim a freedom for you. Yes, indeed, a freedom to be brought into the sword, plague, and famine. And notice particularly verses 18 and 19 of Jeremiah 34. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. 
Does that sound familiar? The calf they cut in two and walked between its pieces. It goes all the way back 1,400 years to 2,000 B.C. It is echoing the very language that is found in Genesis chapter 15. And so you see that throughout this whole history there was a single concept of covenant, a single concept of what it meant to be bound with God. It was the concept of a life and death bond between God and his people. We're at 600 B.C., and yet the same language is used that was found in 2000 B.C. And yet it's interesting, as you think a little bit more about this passage, that it's not exactly the Abrahamic form of covenant renewal that was being followed. It is much more likely that it was the Mosaic form of covenant renewal that was being followed. And we put 1,400 years, and as a matter of fact, Moses dates about 1,400 B.C. And we have a covenant that was made with Moses in 1,400 B.C. as well. Now look at a little of the evidence that we have of the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. Get your Bibles out now. The idea is to see how the whole of the Bible is bound together with this one theme of the bond of life and death established in the covenant. Look at Exodus chapter 21, first of all, and you can see where the Israelites got the idea of releasing their Hebrew slaves. After the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, then in Exodus chapter 21, you have the specific laws of Israel given. Verse 21, these are the laws you are to set before them. And what's the very first one? Verse 2 of Exodus 21, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. In other words, the Zedekiah, when he renewed the covenant, he just set up a checklist of the law. He says, this is not going to be so hard. We'll just go down the list and we'll get that old-time religion back at work again and we'll abide by the laws that are written to which we agreed under the days of Moses. And so they start off with law number one, and they released their Israelite slaves. So even though you have the language in Jeremiah chapter 34 of the Abrahamic covenant in the passing between the pieces, you have the pattern of the Mosaic covenant in which the law was read to the people and then the people committed themselves to keep the law of God. But now look at Exodus chapter 24, and you can see how these two covenants, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, were bound to one another. Look at Exodus chapter 24. Here you have the formalizing ceremony of the Mosaic covenant. Look at Exodus 24, verses 6 and following. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people they responded we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey 
Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has cut with you in accordance with all these words. See, the blood is present again. Just as in the case of the Abrahamic covenant where you have the blood of the animals divided and there is a curse of self-malediction spoken over anyone who should violate the covenant, so also in the Mosaic covenant there is the blood. And upon whom is the blood sprinkled? First, the blood is sprinkled upon the altar symbolizing the presence of God in their midst. Then the blood is sprinkled upon the people And as Moses sprinkles the blood before the people, he says, Behold the blood of the covenant which God has made with you. You see, if you were dealing with two or three million people, it would be rather difficult to make an aisle of animals and wait for two or three million people to march down the aisle one by one. It just wasn't very reasonable. So instead of having them all march down the aisle, as Abraham had seen in his vision, Moses substitutes a symbolic sprinkling of the blood. But that sprinkling, in the very same way, bound the people in covenant relationship with God. And you have then a merger of the two images of covenant making in the book of Jeremiah. So what is happening in the days of Jeremiah 600 in 600 B.C. is a pulling all the way from 2000 B.C. about the animals being divided and from 1400 B.C. about the sprinkling of the blood and the reading of the law to 600 B.C. Are you beginning to get the picture? There is a unifying bond in the whole of the biblical history, and it is the blood covenant. It is one in which men are pledged to life and death in covenant relationship with God. And that context, look from 600 B.C. to about 30 A.D., Look first at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9. And see how all of that whole history finds its ultimate consummation in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9. From verses 15 and following. Now this particular chapter has created difficulties for interpreters for about 2,000 years. And the reason it's been so difficult is because the word covenant in the New Testament, the word for covenant, diatheke, is the same Greek word that means last will and testament. It can mean covenant or it can mean last will and testament. And the translators have wrestled back and forth trying to figure out how to translate those words, that word throughout this chapter. Now, I want you to take you to the very heart of the problem from the very beginning and let you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 17. 
Now, let's just take for a minute the idea that this word diatheke here means covenant rather than last will and testament. And this is the way the verse reads literally. Hebrews 9.17, if you use covenant for the Greek diatheke. For a covenant is made firm over dead bodies. That's what it says literally. A covenant is made firm over dead bodies. What does that sound like? It sounds an awfully lot like that whole tradition of the Old Testament going all the way back to 2000 B.C. to the time of Abraham. It sounds just like what happened in the days of Moses when the people were sprinkled with the blood. It sounds like what happened in Jeremiah in 600 B.C. when the people found that they were bound in the covenant of blood. A covenant is made firm over dead bodies. That is, there's a pledge to life and death in the covenant relation. Now, from that point, look at verse 16, and I'll read this whole section, reading covenant, so you can get a feel for how it would read literally. Verse 16 would read literally as follows. For where there is a covenant, of necessity the death of the covenant maker must be brought forward. Now, I know that reads a lot differently than your English Bibles, most of them, as you read. But that is a literal translation. For where there is a covenant of necessity, the death of the covenant maker must be brought forward. For a covenant is made firm over dead bodies. Now, from verse 18 and following, it reads very plainly. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood, referring to the Mosaic covenant. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, Behold the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now think of that last phrase of Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Why is there no remission of sins without the shedding of blood? It is because man is bound in covenant with God to the point of life and death. All of us are bound in that covenant relationship from creation. And especially if we're in the covenant community of God, we are bound to a covenant of life and death. If we should violate the covenant, then we must die. But we know that we have all sinned. We know that we have all violated the covenant. And therefore, it makes sense. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. You cannot be freed from the curse of death apart from the shedding of the sacrificial blood of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our last reference to Luke 22, verse 20, where Luke says, or records Christ as saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus is here referring to his own blood and saying, my blood that I'm about to shed on Calvary's cross is the blood of the new covenant. Every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time you're reminded of the covenant meal about this table, you have at least a 2,000 or 4,000 year history backing up that experience. That which unifies the whole of the history of redemption is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Abraham saw that smoking pot and flaming torch passing between the pieces, he was seeing a prophecy of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't have to die. Did you know that? Any of you who have looked to Jesus Christ for salvation, you will not die. The Bible does not speak of Christians dying. It speaks of their falling asleep. Death is a punishment for sin. And you, by faith in Jesus Christ, do not have to shed your blood as punishment for your sin, for Christ has shed his blood for your sin. In the cross of Christ, I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to conceive something of the majesty and the glory of your plan of redemption of men. Help us to wonder at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the great salvation that he has accomplished for us. And help each one of us to believe your word to be true as it has been sealed by your covenant blood that we know that death has no power over us, that sin has no power over us, that no evil can touch us because the blood of Jesus Christ Frees us from all sin. Give us that confidence as we look to him who hanging on the cross said, It is finished. But we ask in his name. Amen.